You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the Rand Corporation. I'm Deanna Lee. And I'm Evan Banks. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from Rand's latest research and commentary. It's June 5th. Events in the United States since we last recorded before Memorial Day have been extraordinary. And so, before we start today's show, we'd like to share a brief message from Rand's president and CEO, Michael Rich. James Baldwin famously said, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. It shouldn't require the deaths of innocent black people to lay bare that our society has not yet faced up to the realities of systemic inequality and structural racism. It shouldn't require the civil unrest of the last week. It shouldn't require a once in a century pandemic that disproportionately affects communities of color. The consequences are self-evident. We see them in the data we collect and analyze, in the policies and interventions that never stand a chance when considered apart from the tangled web of biases that perpetuate poor outcomes. Everyone must do more to eliminate racial inequities. At RAND, we will contribute by continuously strengthening our research and analysis on health, education, justice, security, and well-being. We must examine where these areas intersect, listen more to voices that are too often underrepresented, and integrate the historical and structural contexts in which policies have been developed and applied. Anything less would impede our mission to help improve public policy and decision-making. Anything less would dishonor the legacies of George Floyd, Ahmed Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and so many others. Our first item in the show today is a good example of how research and analysis can highlight inequities, as Michael just mentioned. A new RAND survey asked Americans how they're coping with the economic effects of COVID-19. While the pandemic has affected everyone, some groups are hurting more than others. According to our data, one-third of American households have lost income since the pandemic began. And during these difficult economic times, many are struggling to make ends meet. About 30% of households, representing all levels of income, are having trouble paying their bills. But these problems are more highly concentrated among low-income households as well as black and Hispanic households. 40% of non-Hispanic black households and nearly 50% of Hispanic households reported problems paying their bills. That's compared with 21% of non-Hispanic white households. Unsurprisingly, low-income households have fewer options in paying their bills— They report borrowing from friends and family, selling possessions, and simply being unable to meet expenses. Consistent with these findings, evidence from other surveys reveals rising food insecurity among low-income households. This is just the first batch of insights from a sweeping survey that RAND researchers conducted to understand the household effects of COVID-19. We'll share more findings with you in the coming weeks. Earlier this week, Rand Shanti Nataraj wrote about how this economic downturn caused by COVID-19 will reinforce growing inequality in the country. This is because low-income workers are more likely to have lost their jobs in the pandemic, and they're less likely to have savings to fall back on. And since higher-earning Americans are more likely to own stocks, the widening gulf between a rebounding stock market and faltering business performance will only widen the wealth gap. 
small businesses were struggling even before the pandemic, with five of ten small businesses reporting a cash buffer of less than a month. Now, facing even tougher times, there could be a wave of bankruptcies ahead. So what happens once the pandemic has passed? Nataraj says that the structure of the economy and the types of jobs available will be different. That's why it will be important to invest in retraining workers who can't return to their old jobs and to help business owners restructure and restart their operations. We've talked a lot about the spread of disinformation on previous episodes. It's an ongoing challenge, and unfortunately, it seems to have gotten worse during the pandemic. In the first installment of Rand Remote, our COVID-19 briefing series, Rand researchers discussed why disinformation tends to spread alongside the coronavirus and what can be done to stop it. Here's behavioral scientist Todd Helmus. Recent surveys suggest that uh, as much as 30% of uh, at least the U.S. populations believe such things as the uh, coronavirus and the COVID-19 are exaggerated um, or that they were intentionally created by governments or media or, or who knows. So the, the prevalence rates are high for believing these conspiracy theories. And why is that? Um, you know, it's a scary time. Uh, there's a lot of unknowns. This is a new virus. We don't know much about it. We don't have a cure. Uh, people are dying. Um, and so people feel scared. Um, they don't know how it will affect them. Uh, they could be unemployed. They don't know if they'll lose loved ones or maybe they have. Um, so people feel anxious and powerless. And the beauty of conspiracy theories is... Um, uh, they address both of those concerns. They provide a lot of information that's very certain um, and uh, fills in a lot of gaps for people, and so uh, they gravitate to that. Jennifer Cavanaugh, who leads RAND's research initiative on countering truth decay, says that our ever-evolving knowledge about COVID-19 and the complex science behind it makes it even more difficult for people to understand what's true and what isn't. Here's Kavanaugh with a few tips that can help all of us navigate today's difficult information environment. I think that one thing to recognize is just to be honest, that there's a lot of uncertainty and that the story is going to change and that's okay. You have to be comfortable with that. No one's comfortable with with uncertainty, but you have to kind of get yourself to a place where you can tolerate the fact that tomorrow you might hear something new and it could be true. The second is to focus on finding things from multiple sources. Seeing things from one source is is one thing, but seeing it from five or six or seven, that can give you a lot more confidence that that information is accurate. The third is to think about what the source is. This is a public health crisis, and we want to listen to scientists and people who are working in public health. I'm not that interested in getting my information about COVID from an economist or from even a political figure, because that information is secondhand, and I'd rather get it firsthand from a scientist or someone who's working in infectious diseases. So thinking about what sources you're relying on, even if you're reading uh, a secondary source like a newspaper or watching a broadcast, who are they quoting? Who are they citing? And thinking about that type of information. And finally, it's just to think about the general source of where you're getting your information. We know from research we've done at RAND that information provided by newspapers and television and online sources are really very different in terms of the types of information they're providing you with. Online journalism is great in many ways, but it has a lot more opinion and commentary and a lot more advocacy. So if you're just looking for facts, you might be better off looking at a broadcast news uh, program or a newspaper. Kavanaugh and Helmus, along with their RAND colleagues, are conducting research into different aspects of disinformation, including some projects related directly to COVID-19. 
We hope to bring you the findings from some of these projects in a future episode. In the meantime, you can watch this conversation in its entirety on RAND.org or on our YouTube channel. In April and May, RAND surveyed roughly 1,000 teachers and 1,000 principals as the pandemic rapidly transformed education in the United States. Their responses revealed insights into what supports educators need, how they're thinking about the coming school year, and more. Here are a few takeaways from the survey results. First, almost all of the teachers we surveyed engaged in distance learning, but only 12% reported covering the full curriculum they would have taught if schools hadn't closed. Teachers said that they needed lesson plans and help to keep students engaged and motivated to learn remotely. Second, the pandemic has likely made existing disparities in educational opportunities and outcomes even worse. For example, only 9% of teachers in schools serving high percentages of low-income students or students of color reported that all or nearly all of their students were completing assignments. In other schools, roughly a quarter of teachers said that all or nearly all of their students were completing assignments. Third, In the fall, teachers plan to prioritize student well-being more than they did last year. That includes kids' safety, sense of community, and social and emotional well-being. And principals anticipate more emphasis on family engagement and addressing performance gaps. Principals also recognize the need for providing more supports for teachers, with 50% of school leaders indicating that professional learning for teachers will be a higher priority this coming fall than last. RAND experts continue to work on building the evidence base about schooling amid COVID-19. Later this summer, we'll discuss research that examines important education topics in more detail. How do models that project COVID-19 cases and deaths work? What new types of models are needed now that states are reopening? And what should policymakers watch out for when using models? RAND researchers recently sat down to answer these questions and more. While there are many models out there, there isn't a single model that can show everything we need to know about COVID-19. Here's RAND's Carter Price. Part of it has to do with the fact that that uh, we don't know a lot, or at least we didn't know a lot about the disease you know, three, three months ago, uh, and we're starting to learn more. Uh, another aspect of it gets to, you know, what questions are you trying to answer? And so... Uh, different models, you know, for different policy questions, you'll need a different model. And so some of the models can answer multiple policy questions, but some of them, some specific policy questions will need a, a very unique model. And so that's why there's a plethora of models and, and uh, it takes a lot of work to figure out which one is appropriate for your specific, uh, for anyone's specific questions. Price also explained some of the challenges with existing models. In particular, he said that researchers need to be careful about overstating what their models can do. And policymakers and the media should be wary of these models when reviewing them and reporting on them. But despite their shortcomings, models provide data that can help inform the many difficult decisions facing policymakers today. And perhaps even more importantly, the value of modeling COVID-19 won't just be useful to decision makers today. The lessons learned from modeling now may be most useful in helping us prepare for the next pandemic. You can read and listen to the full discussion with RAND researchers on the RAND blog, where you'll also find a link to our own modeling on the public health and economic effects of COVID-19.
RAND is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more on what we covered this week, check the show notes at rand.org/podcast. We'll see you next week.